0: Direct your attention to chapter six of the book of Revelation, verse nine. And I will read the chapter from this verse to the end of the chapter. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We are in the process of opening the seven seals, the second but by no means the last of the paradigmatic sevens. The first, you may recall, were the seven letters to the seven churches. The paradigmatic sevens which unroll throughout this book, even as these seals are sequentially broken. In front of us are seven bowls and seven trumpets and seven angels. Number seven is common to the pattern of the symbolism of this book. In our last session, we dealt with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Seals 1 to 4 of verses 1 to 8 of this 6th chapter. And we learned that they are each one symbolic representations of the curse which hovers over the fallen creation. A fall and a curse which results or ends finally in death and hell, the last of the four seals. Apart from Christ, that, of course, is the destiny of the created order and those in it who do not belong to him, the final and ultimate eschatological curse, irreversible in its dimension. Now the fifth seal, verses 9 to 11, which deals with the martyred saints, or the elect of God who have been put to death for their testimony to the Lord and to his word. The sixth seal, which follows in verses 12 to 17, will bring us to the consummate final judgment. But the seventh seal, the seventh seal awaits in verse 1 of chapter 8. So we will wait for its revelation while chapter 7 intervenes. Verse 9 deals with the opening of the fifth seal and opens a portal or a window upon souls. Souls, as the text specifically tells us, souls beneath the heavenly altar of God. That means that these souls belong to the glorified state, the glorified state of the interadventual era, that is, the era between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. The soul or the spirit, the terms can be used interchangeably, the soul or the spirit of these martyred Christians is disembodied. That is, it is a soul without a body, and yet it is a soul which is glorified with a heavenly benediction. We reinforce this scene, which is telling us something about the interadventual period. We reinforce this scene, the hope of the Christian soul in general, that as the apostle puts it, to be absent from the body or to be disembodied, is to be at home with the Lord, is to have the soul in glory, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Death for the Christian martyr or non-martyr of the interadventual age, death for the Christian is the soul taken to heaven, resting in that celestial glory, awaiting the day of the resurrection of the body. The disembodied soul waiting to be clothed upon, as Paul puts it, with its resurrection day body. These martyr souls are in that glory phase. Now there is one more thing to note here. The narrative which is implicit here duplicates the narrative that is explicit with respect to the soul of Christ. The soul of Christ which he gave up from the cross to be glorified for three days in his disembodied state while his body awaited the resurrection of the body and the reunion with his soul on Easter morning. Jesus himself, in his human soul and human body, passes through this stage of redemption and glorification and resurrection. Thus, these disembodied martyrs follow in his train and they remind us of the soul's destiny at death for the Christian believer conformed to the heavenly reception which greeted Christ Jesus on his death and the reunion of his soul and body which in his case followed on Easter Sunday. There is a paradigm here in these souls beneath the altar. We are reminded, I am suggesting, of the ghost or the soul which Jesus gave up as he expired his last on the cross. If I may suggest that Christ is the eschatological martyr, then these semi-eschatological martyrs are conformed to his story in glorified souls with bodies awaiting the day of resurrection. But you must remember that that day is already past for Jesus Christ. His resurrection body guarantees the resurrection of their bodies in the future day of the final judgment, even as his soul being separated from his body and going into the disembodied state Testifies to the benediction of their glorification, their soul-spirit glorification before the coming of the end of the age. Now although this drama is significant, it comes in the context of the incarnation of our Savior. We have celebrated that period or season just recently and in general have remembered that Christ as the Son of God condescended or accommodated himself to human nature. In other words, he took a true and genuine human nature similar to that which you and I possess, a human nature which is composed of a true body and a true soul, or a human body and a human soul. Yes, the incarnate Christ, The man, Jesus of Nazareth, had a human nature like our own, sin accepted, with a true body and a true soul. Now let us ponder for a moment the state or the condition or the quality of that condescension. He would condescend to take into union with his divine nature, a true human nature, a body-soul, human nature. But then... He would be visited with what he was not ever in, what he never deserved to be visited with. He was visited with the separation and the rending and the tearing apart of that union of body and soul. So that that soul was detached from that body and that body went into a tomb and the soul went to its glorification while that body waited in the grave for reunion. This state of Christ enduring in his human nature what we are enduring because of the curse is an amazing exercise or testimony to His grace to us. Namely, that he would allow not only his life to be taken from him in the cursed death of the cross, but he would allow what death itself means, namely, the rending and dissolving of that union, that intimate union between body and soul, so that they were separated for three days and accommodated to the status of being under the curse. He did this in order to reverse it. He allowed it to come upon himself in order to take it away. As he hangs on that cross accursed as a criminal... As he hangs on the cross, the curse, he hangs there to take that curse away. He hangs there to remove it. So he undergoes this death experience of the separation and the rupture of that union between body and soul in order to take it away. And on the third day, it is taken away. On Easter Sunday morning, his body and soul are reunited. And that is what he's done for you and me. That is what he has done for his people, not just these martyrs, but that is what he has done for all those who are called according to his purpose and according to his electing grace. We, we cannot lose sight of why Christ enters into the story of human, human, of our humanity. We can't lose sight of that because in so doing, He is taking the cursed nature of what has come upon that fallen humanity upon himself in order that he may restore us to the pristine and sinless humanity of Adam before the fall, even as he himself is a sinless second Adam after the fall. Now, in verse 10... This cry of the martyred saints. Notice that they speak. We have speech in this section of the fifth seal. This speech is anchored in their confession of the Lord God's character. What kind of moral character does God the Lord have? He is holy and true, they confess. Holy, separate from evil and true to his character that he will punish evil, punish evil, even the evil injustice and unrighteousness of shedding the blood of his saints without cause. This plea is a call not for personal vengeance. It is not a personal vendetta. Upon which the martyrs have embarked. Rather, it is a confession that vengeance is God's and he will repay in accordance with his holy and true, just and righteous nature. They are asking him to be himself. They are asking God to do what is just and right. They are not asking for personal revenge. They are asking for him to declare his own Righteousness and trustworthiness. They are confident that the Lord will do righteousness and justice because that is the case with respect to his moral character, with respect to the kind of God that he is. Their only plea is how long. How long until he performs it. Now the how long here in Revelation 6 echoes the psalmists who asked, how long? How long, for instance, will the enemy spurn your name, O Lord, as Psalm 74 verse 10 indicates? There the psalmist, as here the martyrs enter into the heart of the matter, of this matter of vengeance. It is God's name which is attacked. When his people are attacked by evildoers, it is God's name that is attacked by those evildoers. And so, therefore, the attack is not against them, per se, as it is against the holy and sacred, holy and true name of God Almighty himself. At the cry of how long these martyrs enter into the present and future righteous vindication which the Lord God performs in judging evildoers now and not yet. Yes, there is enough judgment in the now world to testify to a coming final judgment in the not yet dimension of the world to come. The how long here then becomes an existential reaction, an existential reaction to the delay of the interadventual age. And verse 11 tells them that this delay is for a little while. The delay is for a little while until the full number of God's elect martyr saints is completed. Others are yet to be folded into this paradigm, suffering unto blood for their witness to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others must follow on the martyr. Trail, even as we are realizing in our day that more and more Christians are beginning to suffer even unto death. The macro narrative behind this mini-narrative is the delay of the parousia, the delay of the second coming of Christ. Christ's return in glory and judgment is delayed to the future fullness of time, when the gathering of all the elect is finished. How long, as a question, is also even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly as a declaration. The two expressions are complementary, not, as so many liberals maintain, contradictory. This is incidentally a keystone of liberal New Testament scholarship, that the early church was confused and had two contradictory views, One, that Jesus would come very quickly before even their deaths at the end of the first century, and another, that he would come back far into the future. The two were contradictory because they were two different forms of Christianity. And finally, it had to be resolved by the early church. No, the fields remain white for the harvest, as Jesus said. The gathering unto Christ of the elect martyrs and non-martyrs goes on apace, until he comes. Those are complementary expressions. They are not contradictory expressions. The tension is there, even as the tension is always present in the now-not-yet relationship of the New Testament gospel and eschatological message. The cry for God's avenging righteousness is answered with the breaking of the sex, of the sixth seal. And here we have the final judgment of the cosmos in apocalyptic terms, duplicating other passages of scripture, which describe the final assize. That term assize is perhaps an older word, but it is a synonym for a judicial or courtroom review, like a judgment scene. Those other passages of Scripture which duplicate this, Matthew 25, for instance, the sheep and goats' judgment, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, and other passages from the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament is consistent in suggesting that there is a final de- declaration of God's justice and judgment at the end of the age. The cry for God's righteous anger to appear verses 9 to 11, is matched by the cry for those who pray to be hidden from God's righteous anger in verses 16 and 17. I want you to notice this already pointed out, that the cry of the martyrs there in verse 10 is speech. It is a declaration which comes from that group. The same is true in verse 16 and 17. The cry for the rocks to fall on us, etc., Because of the coming of the wrath of the Lamb and of the Lord God, that is speech, that is a declaration. Therefore, these last two, these these two seals, number five and six, have this phenomenon of actual uh, uh, speech, which structures the patterns of the of the seals. What I mean by that is, structurally, the fifth seal contains the believer's plea while the sixth seal contains the plea of unbelievers. Contrasting eschatological scenarios. The one, a testimony to something good, the other, a testimony to something fearful. The already is over when we come to the sixth seal. The not yet breaks upon the ungodly. The already is over. As the sixth seal is broken, the knot yet breaks upon those who are under its curse. Final judgment has come. Any questions to this point or comments? All right, I'm going to let you take a break now. I'm probably not going to go very long today. So I'll let you break and then we'll return and I'll talk about the details Of the sixth seal. Now, with respect to the sixth seal in verses 12 and following, William Hendrickson, in his commentary, more than Conqueror's commentary that I recommend to to recommended to you when we began this series, Hendrickson suggests a pattern of sixes in the sixth seal. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Six in the sixth. He says there are six elements of the created order. In verses 12 to 14, earthquake, number one, blackening of the sun, number two, moon turned to blood, number three, stars falling to the earth, number four, fig trees dropping unripened figs, number five, the sky split apart. Then he goes on to say there are six positions of human activity or human vocation. In the created order in verse 15, kings or rulers, number one, princes or great men, number two, military personnel or commanders, number three, rich, number four, strong, number five, slave and free, number six. Aha, now you're starting a small rat, aren't you? But you will notice that the text of verse 14 The first number of sixes that he counts contains a seventh element, a seventh element of the created order, namely the collapse of the mountains of the land and the islands of the sea. So couldn't he see? Couldn't he count correctly? Couldn't he recognize the the, uh, point of the text? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. And verse 15 actually contains seven elements of human activity. Slave and free being two distinct categories, not one. You can't elide them into one just so it makes your six sixes. Well, in fact, seven elements in each order of creation is more appropriate for this sixth seal, which predicts the full, final, complete destruction of the created earth and the human activity upon it a seven-fold permanent dissolution. So it would make more sense to say that there are seven elements in each of these categories than six, because seven is the perfect number of the number of completeness and fullness. Now I suggested that the seven-fold permanent dissolution of the created arena, which is being described here, and man's role in it, is very similar to the language of 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 10 and 12 listen to what the apostle says 2nd Peter 3:10 but the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away notice the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed notice the elements meaning the elements which are Material will be destroyed with intense heat. I like the King James better. Their fervent heat, it's more, it's it's more vigorous. Be be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Then verse twelve. We look for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. This is a day of disillusion as the sixth seal is indicating to us. It is also a day of the shaking to nothingness of the creation. The shaking to uncreation of the creation. The complete reversal of the creation to uncreation and nothingness. Where am I getting that? From Hebrews chapter 12. Notice verses 26 and 27 of the 12th chapter of that book. The expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. The removing of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Namely the eschatological things will be not, cannot be shaken and they remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable sacrifice. The kingdom which is which remains is a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Heaven's domain and and residence of God and Trinity and the holy angels and the souls of departed martyrs and the souls of just men made just men and women made perfect. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be turned into a fervent heat. It cannot be dissolved. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be burned up. You want the place which is burning up? That's the other side of the coin, eschatologically speaking, hell itself. So, a complete reversal of the creation, as it began in Genesis 1, is before us in this vision of the sixth seal. This is a vision of the funeral day of the created world. This is a vision of the funeral day of the created world. Notice it is trembling. It is trembling and quaking with death throes. Notice it has its funereal weeds on, black sackcloth. Notice it is reversing itself. It is reversing itself back to what it was before it came into existence. It is turning back to darkness. Darkness covering the entire cosmos with no sun, no moon, no stars, no light bearers. It is being uncreated. Eschatology here is reversing protology there. In Genesis 1, eschatology here in Revelation 6 is reversing protology there in Genesis 1. The stars fall from the sky, leaving inky blackness and no more silvery dots on the created heavenly canvas. The fruit bearing trees of the earth cast down no more ripe fruit. They are finally cursed with barrenness and destruction as Jesus himself indicated would come upon them. Even the sky, the sky blue sky disappears, split apart and rolled up like a scroll, swallowed into black darkness with the rest of the created order. An eschatological uncreation of the protological and historical creation. That is what is happening here. Mountains and islands dissolved, dislodged, shaken to final and ultimate collapse and permanent dissolution. An eschatological collapse of the entire creation, the whole cosmos, a return to nothing. the whole cosmos, dissolved in a fervent heat, returning to nothing as it was in the beginning. Notice the symmetry. as it was in the beginning, so it is in the end, as it was in the beginning, nothing, so it is in the end, nothing. on creation to creation. Nothing to something in Genesis 1. Now in Revelation 6, something to nothing. Creation to uncreation. The reversal of the paradigm. Before Genesis 1, there was nothing but God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After the final dissolution of the cosmos and the uncreating of the whole created universe, there will be something, namely God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the holy angels, and the just, the souls of just men and women made perfect. The dimension of God and his heaven remains. Hell itself also remains. But temporal and earthly material reality is uncreated. That's the paradigm that is in front of us. That's the paradigm that bookends the whole beginning and ending of the history of God's activity with creation. He is going to undo what he did. He is going to undo it in order that what can never be shaken will remain forever and ever. Being a king or ruler on the earth will not avail on that great day of God's wrath. They will beg to be hidden from the destruction, even begging the mountains and the rocks to cover them hiding them from the fear and the face of God's just anger. Being a prominent personality, a great person of prestige or reputation upon the earth will not avail on that day. Being a military leader upon the earth will not avail on that day. Nor will economic riches buy and escape from this collapse. Nor will personal, economic, or social strength or power avert this day of reckoning nor will slavery or freedom matter when the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed against the ungodly. All positions of human authority and prominence will be reversed. Turn to nothing as the ungodly creature faces the Creator with nothing, no grace of God, no love of God, no mercy of God, yet nothing to hold on to, nothing to cry out for, nothing but to let the rocks and the mountains cover him and hide him from the wrath of God. Those who utter the plea of verses 16 and 17 are the goats on the left hand of Matthew 25. The ungodly who have persecuted the saints, blasphemed the sacred name of the land, and God his Father spurning the wooing of the Holy Spirit, and have been servants of the kingdom of darkness. To eternal darkness they will be banished. They will live for eternity as they have lived here in the inky blackness of their depraved souls. You will banished as the saints in light and will be received into the glory of the light of the world and will go from glory to glory after the feet of the Lamb, His beloved Father and their beloved Holy Spirit. Now, dear friends, we have not been called to this experience of the sixth seal. Not the wrath of God for those in Christ, but grace and love of God in Christ to us. This is not our story in the sixth seal. Our story is embedded in the fifth seal. And why do we escape the wrath to come? Because the Son of God went through that final judgment for us. You see, even as we said that in his own life, he goes through the separation of a body and soul. The dissolution of that body-soul union. Even as he did that, so he too went through the final judgment. He was accursed. Bearing that curse vicariously, not personally, not in not in his own character, but bearing it vicariously as a substitute, he was accursed. And thus a judge to bear the wrath of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cries out. That was hellish torment for him. No, he didn't go into the place of the damned, but that would be the equivalent of it for his father to have forsaken him, even for a split second, even for a nanosecond. It would be something that had never occurred to him in all history of his existence. And yet he did. He bore it. He bore that final aspect of judgment, namely the fury of the wrath of God against guilty sinners, and he did it for us. So he's been through that so that we don't have to go through what's present here in this sixth seal on the final day of the world's life. And he's been through the separation of the body and soul and put it back together, reunited it by the power of his resurrection from the grave. So the grave has no terror for us and the, and the death experience itself has no terror for us because Christ has already been there ahead of time to sanctify it unto our good. And he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father in glory because he's been acquitted completely and fully and justified perfectly before the face of God for all eternity. And that's because he's come to do that for us. His justification is our justification. We do not fear any of this funereal uncreation back to nothingness of the sixth seal. We do not fear it because Christ in his glorious body, soul, resurrected resurrected person sits in the state of heaven's glory and is justified before the face of his Father and the Blessed Spirit forever and ever. Amen and amen. So, this vision is is not our story. It's the story of those who despise the gospel, who despise the grace of Christ, who despise the Lord who created them and who has offered redemption to their depraved Souls. Our gathering to the throne of God at last will not be for condemnation but for the cosmic vindication of our triune God and the declaration that his elect are justified before the face of heaven and even before the face of hell itself. In other words, Why do we have to appear before the final judgment throne? Not because of any weighing out of rewards or punishments, but because we will be part of a cosmic vindication of God's own justice. We, in our justified state, will be part of a declaration to all, the saved and the damned, that God is righteous and just and holy in all that he says and does. It will be an an exhilarating experience for us to go through that, Because we will be part of the testimony to the Lord God and his gracious might and and holiness and saving mercy and blessed son and loving Holy Spirit forever and ever. That's that's what the the appearance before the seat of judgment is, is for the believer. Not something that's going to change the story or change the direction. And that's all I have to say. On the fifth and sixth seal, if you have any questions or comments, I'll be glad to uh, wait on you. <coughs> yes. Is this where Elliot the Narnia? C.S. Lewis? Uh-huh. Um, in, in, in part, yes. Uh, if you know the Narnia Chronicles, uh, which I, my wife and I have been reading, uh, just, just to renew our interest or understanding of Lewis's genius. But the last book is called The Last Battle. And in that last volume, Lewis has a very penetrating explanation of why the world turns back to darkness and why the uh, survivors of the Narnia experience are going on to endless light. And obviously it's something he's taken out of the book of Revelation, out of the scriptures as a whole. So uh, he's uh, he's of course uh, very steeped in the Word of God in that sense, even though he didn't believe it was infallible. I'm sorry to say, but uh, nonetheless he understood the imagery of it because, of course, he was a professor of medieval literature, and so imagery was extremely important even before he was converted. But after his conversion, he was able to harness all that that brilliance and creativity. And the Narnia Chronicles are an expression of that. Even though the Aslan is the Christ figure in the in the narrative, uh, as some of you may know. Well, let's bow in prayer to be dismissed. Father, we number our souls with the souls of the martyrs, and count it an honor and a privilege. By your grace alone, through faith alone, to stand with those who have stood even unto death. Lord, we thank you for what your son underwent, what he endured, condescending and even humbling himself to, to the incarnation of our human nature. And doing so that he might reverse the curse that hangs over our human nature, take away the Our guilt and punishment satisfy your justice and wrath, which is due to us, rightly deserved. We rightly deserve to be destroyed by you. And yet you have spared us for the sake of your son, whom you love and whom we love as well. O Lord, we thank you that we are even now delivered from the wrath to come, that wrath that is laid out so plainly, poignantly, and powerfully in this sixth seal. O Lord, we pray for our unbelieving world, and we ask, O Lord, that you might visit your Holy Spirit upon those who belong to you by your divine predestination and election, and bring them into the harvest fields of your eternal and everlasting kingdom. We pray pray your blessing upon our lives in this new year, and ask you to grant us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ richly for your sake, and for Jesus' sake, amen.